I don't think I've ever been too, have I ever been too funny? I mean, I, I, I made someone laugh so much they threw up once. More Wiser Podcast. Andrew Tarvin, humor coach and comedian. Do you remember a moment when you were a little kid and you went, oh, I can turn this on and off. I can be really funny when I want to, but I also understand that I can turn this skill set off. Do you remember a moment like that? I don't know if I ever had a moment of, of turning things off. I had, a, I had moments where I would have flashes of like, I can turn this thing on. But I'm not. I, I'm the opposite. I was not the naturally funny person. I was not the one that was cracking people up. And there, there are certainly highlights and things where, on pure accident, I would make you know my mom laugh or my my friends laugh. Uh, but it was fewer and far in between. Like I, I'm more of the stereotypical bookworm, uh, academic nerd type person. And it wasn't only until later. It wasn't until I started doing improv and stand up in college that I actually even like discovered this quote unquote skill of humor. So the opposite, it holds true. So there's, there's those glimpses of it every now and then, but I didn't have the skill set to turn it off because it was hardly ever on. I want to get your take on this then, because you talk a lot about humor at work and I want to know when is it appropriate to be funny like you, Andrew? And when is, I mean, you have to have been in meetings where it's like, oh, dial it back a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, I, I wish as an engineer, I could give you a percentage. I wish I could be like, you know, you got to be 11.7% of the time you're using humor as like, well, the perfect sweet spot. But the reality is that, you know, every situation is different. Every person is different. Every, every culture is different. But I think the thing that, you know, sits with me is, is there's two ways to approach it. The kind of like proactive, like when to use humor is this thing of like, when is it going to serve the situation? And so, you know, my focus as coming from the, the world of engineering and, and humor being a thing that I had to learn, it was always like, oh, how does this help me achieve something? How does this make me a better leader or a better project manager or a better friend or a better spouse? And so when it's when the humor is connected less as a like, I want people to see me as being funny and I want people to like look at me and pay attention to me. I want to be the center of attention and more of, I want to use humor here to get people to pay attention to the message in general, or I want to help to relieve a little bit of stress, et cetera. When it's connected to a little bit of a bigger purpose, it tends to be more appropriate in the workplace. Now, obviously with friends and stuff like that, sometimes you're just, you know, bantering and back and forth just to, to, you know, uh, enjoy the moment. But from a workplace perspective, that's where intent becomes a little bit more important. And I'm sure you can, because I can tell when someone does want to be the center of attention versus they're creating a more fun environment. And we all have this guy or gal. How do you interact with them as someone who, you know, I am funny, but you are trying really hard. I mean, what's the dynamic between you and that individual like when you're in those meetings? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, my my goal in a meeting is never to be like the I want to walk out and people are like that was a stand up show. Like that's not the goal of a sure, or sure. focus of a meeting. And I think, you know, one of the things that I learned from the world of improv is that uh, a lot of times the best improvisers are not the ones saying the funny thing. 
they're the one creating the environment. They're setting up the other people. They're justifying kind of what's happening. And I think for myself, I, I appreciate being in that role. Like I, you know, I appreciate being the one that's giving the assist. I don't have to always be the one, you know, dunking the ball to use a, you know, basketball metaphor around humor. And so to me, I can take pride in that sometimes. Like if I recognize like, oh, this person wants recognition as being funnier, they want to be the life of the party as an introvert, I'm more than happy to just set them up. And then I'll add little tags and things to it, but very much the improv mentality of how am I yes-ending what they're doing? How am I yes-ending them to support them, hopefully in a good way, assuming it's positive humor. If it's not, then you know I may shut it down. Um, and then also, how do I add like, how do I keep it going rather than you know, just stopping it and be like, ha that was funny. But how do I add maybe a slight tag to it or a slight, you know, uh, comment that goes beyond it that helps to build the moment as opposed to, you know, stop it completely. And I want to dive into that for a sec. Cause I, I like speaking to people who are naturally very funny because usually, uh, and I'll speak for you, Andrew, you probably <laughs> don't dive deep into like the science behind why it's funny or what you're actually doing. But I think there's a lot of people out there who, who humor does not come naturally. So when you say you're adding a tag or you're you're adding on, I mean, what's the thought process like if you can break it down, you know, I want to make that funnier. Oh gosh, you know, what what's the what's your brain doing that maybe other people's isn't, do you think? Well, I think I, I will say this is why this is a, such a fun conversation because I'm not that quote unquote naturally funny. And this is this is kind of what the talk of the skill of humor. And I think part of the reason why it's done well and, and part of what, you know, we train on is how do we take it apart? Like, you know, there's there's a cliche about humor. I think it uh, I can't remember exactly who said it and maybe e, e. Cummings or someone that's like, you know, the dissecting humor is like dissecting a frog. It's only interesting to the most kind of scientific of minds and the dog and the frog dies in the process. Like I am that person that's like, no, I scientifically want to take it apart. I want to understand what is the structure and, and have had to think about what is happening in those particular moments. And so in my brain, you know, the, the thing that I, I come back to a lot is a fundamental mindset of improvisation, something called yes and. And yes and is this idea of it's how we as improvisers get on stage and make a scene out of nothing because it's essentially saying whatever you say i'm going to say yes to in in recognition not that i blindly agree with it but that i'm acknowledging that you've said it and now i need to add something to it and so when someone says something funny i'm thinking about how can i yes and what that person has said and a, a very kind of specific application of that that tends to work also comes from uh, uh, upright citizens brigade which is a school of improvisation um, but they always taught this this kind of framework called if this is true, what else is true? So it's just kind of this it, for me as an engineer and me as a more introverted person for the other people listening that are kind of like that. It's a good sign because there's a logic kind of to it of like, what's the logical extension of this person just said? Like, how can I like, oh, OK, you've just made a joke about, um, you know, what if uh what if dogs were now suddenly in charge of things? They like realize that all of these, after all of these years that, you know, they should be the ones in charge and that uh, us humans should be doing things for them. Except, like, what would that be like? Okay. How do I yes. And that, how do I build off of that? If that's true, what else could be true as opposed to, Oh yeah. Funny. I think what most people do is, Oh yeah, that's a funny idea. And then it stops rather than, Oh, what, what's my own take on that? How would that extend? Where would we go from there? And you really have to think very quickly 
to come up with the extension of what they're saying because it, it I mean in your opinion how long can you sit on a tag before it's kind of awkward or no longer really appropriate what do you think it's a great question because you're right. It can't be like, and this this is one of the things that I talk a little bit about in in my TEDx talk is this idea called uh, something called staircase wit, where it's like you can't be like four hours later and be like, hey, remember when Joe said this thing? What if afterwards I said this? And like everyone's gonna be laughing up. They're gonna be like, what is, are you still thinking about four hours ago? What's going on? Yeah. So there is a delay. I think while it's still the subject matter of conversation, I don't think it has to be within the split second, but. The sooner it is after that, the the better. And what what we recognize, what's what's good about staircase wit. So if you do ever have that experience where you know you're you're in the car ride home later, or you're in the shower, or you're walking away from a conversation or whatever, and you're just like, ah, this is what I should have said. Uh, that's actually a good sign, right? It means that you have these comedic ideas. It just means that there's a delay in when they come. But with practice and repetition and more kind of intentional reflection on those moments. To kind of be like, oh, okay, so if this were to come up again, here's how I would say it, and this is what I would do, almost like that role play scenario in your head of it, it can actually shorten that amount of time that it takes for that comedic instinct or that comedic idea to come in. And I think one of the things that uh, is maybe helpful for people to recognize is that there's a weird kind of dynamic to, to be funnier in the moment requires just being in the moment more. If you're spending all of your time thinking, I got I want to say something funny after this person. I want to impress these people at this party or I want to impress this person at an interview or whatever whatever is going through your mind about like why you want to be funny. If that's all you're thinking about, you're not going you're most likely not going to say something that's actually funny or compelling. It's going to take too long. But if you're more present in the moment, how do I yes and whatever it is that they say? How do I build that? And if you've done the work previously of learning things like setup and punchline and comic triple, et cetera, and we can talk about those terminology, uh, terminology if you want, if you've done some of that work before and it starts to come in a little bit more naturally. So I think the key, particularly for humor in the moment or conversational humor, is yes and and being more present. Do you think that's why... And I'll throw it back to the office, which has been, you know, hasn't had a new episode in a while. But I think that might be why that's what she said caught on so much because it was like a tag that you could throw on almost any comment, mm-hmm. and it sounded stupid, and it would it would get a laugh. And I think it, that's there's a lot there's other things like that, um, and I can't think of them off the top of my head. Clearly, I'll, maybe I'll think of them in four hours. <laughs> but I, I kind of are there any pre canned ones? that you can ease your way into that you go, oh, that that works more often than not. I wouldn't lead with that's what she said, but are there any other ones that you can think of? Well, I think that there are, certainly within a culture and a group, that's how you start to develop things like uh, you know, inside jokes, et cetera. There's certain phrases or certain concepts. Um, so yeah, the office said, that's what she said. Brooklyn nine, nine said title of your sex tape is one like that. They would say after kind of like interesting phrases or that kind of stuff. Sometimes it could just be an interesting look and all of that. And so I think it's, it's less about certainly there there's value in, in what kind of within comedy we consider to be, um, planned, um, spontaneity is kind of what I refer to it as anyways. Planned spontaneity is like, you know, certain situations are going to happen. And so you can start to pre-plan what's, what would they say in that particular situation? So like as stand-up comedians, we will often at least somewhat high level think, even if we don't write it down, we'll think through, what am I going to say if my microphone goes out in the middle of a performance? Or what would I say if the server drops glasses? Uh, right, because we need to. We know we need to say something. We need to call the moment. 
We need to recognize, hey, this thing has happened. And it doesn't have to be the funniest punchline in the world, but we need to address it. Otherwise, everyone else is going to be like, are they going to are they going to say something about that server just dropping all of those glasses? Are they going to pretend it didn't happen? Like, we just need recognition that it's there. So we might pre-plan what we're going to say. And then any times it happens, boom, this is the thing that I'm gonna, going to react with. So you could think of certain moments. Like if you're going through the interview process, you could say, okay, what's my humor response going to be if they ask me the question, what's your greatest weakness? Or if I'm going on a bunch of dates, you know, what am I going to answer if they ask a question or what am I going to do when they bring the bill and determining who's going to pay the bill? Or if I'm in a meeting with you, et cetera. Like, so there's, there can be moments where you're like, let me pre-plan something that's going to happen there. But again, a lot of the the being present and the more authentic kind of like just a reaction, just a yes ending, just a simple thing is a lot of times going to get a better result. Because the other thing to recognize is that humor in conversation has a far lower bar in terms of what it needs to be funny to actually make people laugh than if you were to go to a stand-up comedy club. Because the expectation is different. Like, in fact, they did a study and they were looking at what's causing people to laugh in conversation. And I think it's something like, in this one study, it was like 60 to 70% of it had nothing to do with punchlines. It was the way someone said something. It was how they said something back. It was maybe just a funny word that they they selected. But it wasn't actually about telling jokes. Interesting. That... That seems to be the same correlation to when other people are laughing, things seem funnier. Whereas mm-hmm. like if you're watching it alone, it takes a lot to make me laugh if I'm just watching like a, a Netflix special. But if you're around other people, especially if somebody finds it hilarious, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, this is kind of funny. So I want to talk about bombing because that yeah. leads me into that. So you're stand up. You said you have pre-canned things. What about if someone's, what if you get a heckler? What if someone's doing that in the crowd? Very rarely does heckling actually happen. It does. It's not actually that common. And I know it's very popular, especially on like social media videos to see like comedian destroys heckler, etc. And that's just because it makes for good social media. The, the reality is that there's there's not too often the actual very vocal person heckling the person on stage. Sometimes there's people who are just conversing or they're doing something to distract it, and that can be very distracting as well, but it happens very little. But the reality is that I, I go very much approach of, I think, I think it was Seinfeld was the first person that kind of talked about it as this approach of like, to just kind of engage with that person and be like, what's, what's going on in their life that they feel like it's okay to interrupt this show of, you know, 300 people and that they're the one other person that should be talking. Because the thing is, as as a comedian on stage with the microphone, you have a lot of power and you have a lot of status in the eyes of the audience. And so if someone says something that is a very good natured heckle and then you like destroy them and you go against them aggressively, the audience may actually turn on you. They may be like, wait, like, no, the person was just having fun. They're probably a little intoxicated. Like that was too mean of you. Like you were punching down at that point, as opposed to uh, like Seinfeld talks about, like, I'll just talk to them and be like, what's going on in your day, uh, sir? Like what's, what's going on that you're like, yeah, I'm going to shout out right now. How are you feeling? Did you, is there something that you wanted to say? And you talk through them, then you might find punchlines in the conversation kind of back and forth. But that's one of those improvised moments where it doesn't have to be this brutal line that you say. It's just more of like, oh, people are going to laugh at, at the fact that you're engaging with this person. And then if they become belligerent, if they become aggressive, that's when you can kind of you know shut them down. Or I also know plenty of other comedians that then just get them kicked out. like Because the, the point of the show is not 
for the audience, for 300 people to see this interaction between you and this one person. They came to hear material. They came to hear stories. They came to actually laugh and not, you know, have a, have this, this engagement. So my strategy is talk with them, be friendly and kind of in a positive kind of fun, playful way. Uh, unless it become, you know, unless it goes on for too long, but luckily that's it, like I said, it rarely happens. And people will heckle you whether you're doing good or bad, but if, if you are bombing though, well, I guess here, let me back up. When's the last time you bombed? If, if you're a standup, I mean, you definitely can recall it. Oh, for sure. And, and for people listening, just to, to clarify terms, because terminology in standup is a little bit weird. Uh, cause if, if you kill it, then that means you did really, really well. Right. Um, right. And uh, if you bomb, then it means that you did very, very bad. There was hardly any laughing. If the audience is dead, then it means that they just weren't like laughing at a lot of people in general. Right. So there's some confusing terminology. So bombing is like, okay, did very terribly. Uh, the last one that comes to mind is um, probably four or five that like that was really bad. That was like kind of made me question myself a little bit. Bombing was <laughs> four or five years ago before the pandemic. And I was doing a speaking event in Singapore, wanted to do some traveling. So I did ended up doing some, some standup in Malaysia. And uh, I did this show in Malaysia. I was invited on as a comedian. And I went up and I did my set. And it was a relatively quiet audience. And then I got off stage. And I thought in my head, I was like, you know what? Culturally, sometimes different cultures, some cultures are very quick to laugh and be very vocal about it. And then some cultures are more reserved. And I've done shows or events where I've spoken and it's been a relatively quiet audience. And then people afterwards come up like, oh, my God, you did an amazing job. And it's like, oh, OK, they're just a little bit quiet. So I thought maybe in my head that was the case. The comedian that got up after me absolutely crushed it. Like this audience was laughing almost louder than any audience that I've ever clearly laughed, uh, you know, heard laugh before. And one of his funniest jokes was a callback to a joke that I attempted to make, but didn't do very well or didn't land very well or whatever. So it was clearly just me in this particular situation. And, and that was a function of, I, I didn't do enough kind of research to, to better understand what this particular group liked. And, and I, I, I did a lot of the material that I do a lot of times when I'm traveling through Europe, et cetera. Like I was like, Oh, but you know, it's, it's international. So I'll just re reapply what I do in, you know, places like Spain and, um, in Amsterdam, et cetera. And I'll just do that here in Malaysia and it'll work great. And it's like, nope, different culture, different understanding, different, um, kind of, uh, references, et cetera. And yeah, it was, uh, it was particularly brutal because of how good the person after me did. That must be correlated to reading the room at work mm -hmm. to understanding who the audience is when you walk into like, is this, First of all, is this even a crowd who would appreciate this type of humor mm -hmm. or, you know, are we talking finances and there's probably very dry wit in this group? Uh, how do you, as a comedian, then go about altering material or the way your cadence or things like that in order to, f to fit other people? Do, will you examine comedians who have done well there, who are from there? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is observation. It's it's sometimes checking, okay, what what works well. If it's in the context of a comedy club, then I'll be watching what are the comedians before me doing and whether, you know, what's landing, what type of humor isn't landing. A lot of it can come through conversation with people beforehand. Um, but I'll be perfectly honest, I don't do a tremendous amount of strict comedy anymore. I'm still every now and then, but it's, it's a lot more in the workplace, right? It's a lot of speaking and I'm working with organizations about things. And a lot of that still comes down to, yeah, researching the audience, like knowing who is going to be there, what are their references and, and things, and adjusting on the fly. 
You know, there's uh, as comedians, we'll sometimes have what we kind of call test jokes, or they may not intentionally be a test joke, but we may adjust based on things. So, for example, uh, maybe a clearest example is that I love puns and wordplay. And so pretty early on in my talk or in my set, I'll do a pun or a wordplay. And if the audience laughs at it, then it's like, great, I'm going to do some more puns throughout the set. If they groan at it, then it's like, great, I'm going to do some more puns throughout the, the set and maybe poke fun at the audience a little bit that they find these jokes so terrible, right? We can have this fun, playful back and forth. If I do a pun and it's complete silence, then it's like, okay, I'll drop probably the rest of the puns in my set and maybe go a little bit more storytelling. So you can kind of react to the room. But I do think it's important to recognize that like the the bar for what is funny in a, in a corporate audience is so much lower than what it needs to be funny in a stand-up audience. And that's one of the big differences between like what I would be doing in a stand-up comedy club versus as a speaker versus if I'm an individual corporate employee or uh, working in an organization, I want to add a little bit of humor. Like I don't want people to feel like intimidated or scared by like, I don't know all these different things. Like, no, if you want to use it in a practical case, the bar is so much lower. The stakes certainly are a little bit higher, right? Because if you're to use humor that's inappropriate in a, in a a comedy club, then maybe the worst that's going to happen is people don't laugh or maybe they boo you off stage. But if you're to make inappropriate jokes in an office, you might get fired or sued or whatever, right? So the stakes are certainly different. But the good news is that the bar is so much lower that you don't have to worry about this perfect setup and punchline, just doing something a little bit different, focusing a little bit more on fun over funny is a great place to get started. And say you're in the audience and there is someone speaking, whether they're presenter or they just have something to say, and they're not doing well. They, they try to throw a joke out and it doesn't go well. I'm curious, do you politely laugh, try to punch it up, or just let them stew in it? What's your go-to? <laughs> Mine is, I I tend to, as long as it's appropriate humor, as long as I feel like it's not like punching down or talking about a, a subject that's inappropriate, etc. I tend to try to amp them up a little bit because I've realized that laughing costs you nothing. Well said. Right? Like it's not like you're, you're not assigned a certain amount of laughter in a day. So it's not like if someone, you know, if, if Bob in accounting makes this terrible joke at work and I kind of laugh, force myself to laugh at it at work, it's not like I'm going to go, you know, come home, watch the uh, new Netflix special from, you know, Tig Notaro or uh, Nate Bergazzi or Chris Rock or whatever, and then go to laugh and be physically unable to. And I'll be like, oh no, I used up my laugh earlier today. Dang it. Like, no, like we don't run out of laughing. We don't loud. Like maybe I won't outward. Like, I'm not going to laugh so much that it's awkward where people are like, clearly wasn't funny. Why are you doing it? It's not going to be like a huge cackle, but maybe a, a polite laugh or at least kind of like a, a smile and a head nod, because especially in a, a corporate sense or in a, in a more business context, it's often so terrible, boring, dry, et cetera, that the sheer fact that they're even attempting to make it a little bit better to me is like worth it. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe it's not my exact cup of tea, but I appreciate you like trying to make this better. And I think you touched on an important thing is that comedy, if you're a comedian or not, it seems very territorial, whether or not you or someone else is funny. It's almost like, well, I could be funnier than that guy. Oh, he thinks he's funny. Watch this. And so I, I feel like especially... Uh, there almost comes out like a competitive nature, which I know in the comedy scene used to be difficult. It was almost like you don't want anyone else to succeed because then they would take away from your opportunities. But I like what you're saying about, oh, it costs you nothing to laugh. That's such a great quote. It costs you nothing to just ch chuckle or be polite. 
Yeah. And I think, and it's true. I think that like, especially like the, and that's a big difference, uh, not maybe a big difference, but it is one of the things that I experienced differently when I was in the New York scene of improv and stand up at the same time was that stand up felt a little bit more competitive. It felt a little bit more like, wait, if you're getting stage time, it means that I'm not getting this stage time. And I, I tried to avoid that, but it's, it's hard to, but improv is very much about a we. It's very much about a, uh, how do we bring this together? And that's why, like, for me, I think if, if people want to improve their skill of humor, there's a lot of things that they can do. But I do think taking an improv class is a great one, right? Like, certainly you can take stand-up class, you learn joke writing, et cetera. But what's more practical in everyday life is the improv skill set, is the not pre-planned humor, but being able to react honestly in the moment and build. And it does like this, this yes and mentality. If you do it long enough, it does start to seep in into a lot of different, it talks about, you know, psychological safety and growth mindset and all these other, you know, corporate things uh, that it has these applications to. But then it has that moment of like, hey, we're all having a good time. That person just said a really funny thing rather than thinking, oh man, I want to also say a funny thing so that people think I laugh. You think of like, oh, how do I build off on it? How do I support them a little bit more? How do I help them get that next really funny laugh so that we're all having fun together? And I've heard you say that in a story or through a story, you're something like 20 times more likely to remember a fact than in bullet points. But then I started thinking, well, gosh, how would I give a presentation so people would listen to it more, but I can't really give it in story form? I mean, how do you do it? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the, there's a, a, a study that was done, and at least in that one study, right, with with any study, you got to take it a little bit with a grain of salt, but yeah, facts told in bullet point, or ta- facts told in story form were 20 time, 22 times more likely to be remembered than facts told in, in story, f- or in bullet point form. And the way that you can think about it, because we work a lot with individual people that are working on presentations and organizations. And we worked with some pretty serious groups like the Red Cross, the United Nations, the FBI with NASA, et cetera. These people that these organizations that you don't necessarily think of like, oh, they're talking about really funny stuff. It's like, no, we're, we're talking about sometimes really important or really dry things. And so what you can do is not necessarily say, okay, how do I take the entire presentation and make it one big story, but rather how could I start with a story that is potentially setting up for the theme or the focus or the thing that I'm going to talk about today, right? Like, so my TEDx talk, I open with a story about my grandmother texting me. And that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with humor as a skill, except for I make this point that she confuses WTF and thinks that means, wow, that's fun. And so I set this stage of like, okay, what if we thought more about, wow, that's fun, right? So it's a funny story. It gets people listening. And then there's a segue into like, and this is why I'm telling you this story. And so that's what we coach or, or teach a lot to different groups is to say, yeah, maybe you start with the story. So if you are, you know, the Red Cross and you're talking about disaster preparedness, then maybe use a little bit of humor in a story up front that's about, you know, related to uh, farming or the situation or a presentation that they've done or whatever. And then once people are then listening and they want to hear the conclusion of the story, then you can say, and this is how that relates to what we're talking about today. This is why it's actually important. And it's important to recognize there are going to be moments for humor And then there's going to be very intentional moments for not using any humor. And what's interesting is that that juxtaposition between us laughing, having a good time and us being a little bit more serious about the point actually gets people to pay much more attention than if you were just serious the whole time, right? That change in kind of like how you're feeling is actually a good thing in terms of of helping people to take action. Have you ever gotten in hot water after a meeting? Someone didn't really enjoy what was going on and they were like your boss? 
Uh, I haven't necessarily, I haven't gotten into like hot water in the sense that I've said something inappropriate because my, all of my material, even when I'm doing stand up, my materials, I say, I just rate it mom. Like I always want my mom <laughs> to have watched whatever I've done sure. and be like proud of it. Uh, you know, and so I never, uh, after very, my first couple of years of, of, of comedy, I did go a little blue. So blue in, in terminology of, of comedy is is that it's you know inappropriate in some way like you're talking about you know sex or drugs or you're cursing etc that just means to to go blue and but since then I've been like entirely clean and all that and so clean is just being okay you talk about you know friendly stuff where it's like a, a little kid or a grandmother could hear kind of the material that I'm talking about so I I have done that for years and years and years and so I've never said anything that's been like oh hot water because you said something inappropriate I've had plenty of time where I've said things where I'm like, this is going to get a huge laugh. And then it's just like crickets in the room and people are like, that's the funny guy, right? Anyway, this thing. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that I've realized though is, is that oftentimes the, the most awkward moments come if you dwell on it yourself, if you make it awkward, right? If you like try to land this joke that you think is amazing and then you're like, eh, come on, right? Yeah. Did you hear me? No, I said uh, this, that, like, because this and that, like, that, that's when it's awkward. But, like, if you say a positive, inclusive joke that no one laughs at, it just becomes a positive, inclusive statement, right? It just becomes something where you're like, okay, that's an interesting way to say things. And now we're going to move to this next thing. Do you feel then pressure at work or just in life? Because people know who you are and what you've done. Do you, you must feel pressure to be funny then, right? Like, to, to be on? I do. In fact, we're, we're, we've been talking uh, this entire time and it's like, oh, I haven't been telling funny stories. I haven't been regaling you. I haven't been doing material. Right. And so sometimes people are like, you're talking to that guy, humor guy. Like I didn't laugh all that much. And it's like, this, this is where I get to that scientist part. This is where I'm like dissecting the frog thing a little bit, but for sure, because especially with the, the topic, as soon as people read you know, the humor that works is kind of one of the, the titles of our keynote. As soon as humor is in the title of a speech that we're going to give, it immediately raises the bar for how funny it's going to be. It simultaneously also reduces how important people think it's going to be sometimes. They're like, okay, this we'll see, right? When we're really talking about oftentimes what we do is we, we work with organizations and understand, okay, what are the biggest challenges you're facing? Or even when we're working with individuals, it's like, what, what problems are you trying to solve? Okay, here's how humor can solve them. So it becomes a really important talk for them because it's about how to fix the things that they need to fix or how to do the things that they already need to do. But humor simultaneously being like, well, I don't, we'll see about this thing, but it better be really funny. So it certainly does kind of raise that expectation. And I think I've, I've gotten to the point where I've gotten comfortable just understanding that there are certain moments where I need to be certain things. A keynote talk, for sure, I need to be really funny, but also with a little bit of a message. This podcast of us talking about it, like, yeah, I can start to bring in some stories so that people are like, oh, yeah, that is proof that he is funny. But it is also I want to provide value to people. I want people to like, oh, well, maybe I didn't laugh a ton, but I learned about humor. Like that. that's why the, you know, the talk, the TEDx talk is titled The Skill of Humor. It's like, how do we actually break this apart? for the people that it's not natural for. Because if you're listening to this and you're kind of like, oh, but I'm just naturally funny, it's like, that's fantastic. There's not a lot of people like that. Sometimes understanding the mechanics behind it help you to be more intentional about it. Because we do work with people sometimes who are like, oh, I make people laugh all the time. I just don't know why. And sometimes it goes wrong and sometimes it falls flat. Well, having a little bit more intention behind it can make it give you better results. For people that are listening to this and like, I'm not funny at all. I've never been funny. I'm much more introverted and quiet. 
It's like, great, well, humor is a skill, which means it can be learned. And as I share in my talk, it's like, I am proof that I had to have learned it because I've done over a thousand shows as a stand-up comedian improviser. Like I have the, the skill of humor TEDx talk has more than 13 million views on it. And yet when people from my high school found out that I did comedy, they said, but you're not funny. <laughs> right. Right. Like I improved that. Like, in fact, I recently did an event where someone from my high school brought me in to talk to their organization. And in her introduction, she was like, I find this so fascinating because, you know, Drew and I would sit together in our IB biology class and he would nerd out about biology. He was not the funny person. And today he's here to talk about humor. So let's see how this goes. Like, So anybody can do it. It's a skill. Yeah. It's, and, and what we say is anyone can learn to be funnier, right? Like you're not going to listen to this one podcast or do one, you know, online course and immediately have a Netflix comedy special waiting for you. But anyone can, whatever level that they, they're at, they can boost it up a little bit more because they learn just something like yes and as a, as a way to continue a conversation. Or I referenced a little bit earlier, comic triple, like a comic triple is a helpful starting kind of, you might call it a humor shortcut or humor framework. It's one that's very easy to explain that can help you to kind of unpack that, oh, there is a little bit of a science to this. And so the comic triple is, it's simply a list of three things where the third thing is somewhat unexpected. So, you know, in, in, in stand-up comedy, I used to say that, uh, you know, I'm an engineer. So as a kid, I used to like to take things apart and put them back together again. Things like clocks and radios and my parents' marriage. <laughs> that's a good one. Right. So comic triple list of three things, clocks and radios are kind of somewhat expected. And then boom, parents marriage is something unexpected. And so it creates laughter. Right. So that comic triple is something that you can use in a lot of different times. Basically, anytime you see a list, you can think of, can I add something unexpected or something a little bit funny at the end of it? So that could be a list of benefits of your your um, uh, your product. If you're talking about sales, it could be your LinkedIn bio. Right. So in your LinkedIn bio, you could put like, you know, project manager, um, computer science engineer and um, uh, amateur bowler or, you know, uh, avid uh, Game of Thrones watcher or whatever, where that third thing is something a little bit more personal. And that's going to get more people to lean in. It's, it's this comic triple. And now you might get LinkedIn requests. Or if you do that at a networking event, some people might be like, oh, who are you a project manager for? But much many more people are like. What do you mean by like amateur bowler? It's like, oh, well, I have my own bowling ball and I was on my, you know, varsity bowling league team. And like now you're talking about something human. Now it's no longer this kind of like, you know, standard transaction. And so a comic triple, one of many different comedic devices that exist out there. But by learning it, now you start to say, okay, where could I add a comic triple? Maybe even in conversation, I'll learn that I can end a list with something kind of interesting or, or that kind of thing. So, so learning that process is what we mean by making people a little bit funnier. It's got to go at the end though, right? And it's got to go at the end, which is another really important thing to learn because the, the basic structure of any joke is a setup and punchline. And the, the setup is creating an expectation in the listener's brain and the punchline is breaking that expectation in some way. And so there's a, there's a great quote by, I think it's George Burns who says that uh, happiness is having a caring, close-knit family in another city. Yes. Right. I, like that. I think is a great joke. That joke only works because of the structure, because the funny part is at the end. If you were like happiness is having a family in another city who is close knit, caring, etc., like it doesn't work nearly as well. And so part of that is because 
you're creating the opportunity or the space for people to laugh. So one of the big mistakes people make when they're first starting humor or starting to use humor more, especially if they're not good at it, is uh, is within their pausing, right? We talk about comedy is like timing is really important. So timing can mean when do you actually say a joke, but there's two kind of components of timing and in in telling a joke that are really important. The first timing or the first pause is between the setup and punchline. So if I'm saying this joke, so happiness is having a caring, close-knit family, a short pause here lets the audience know, like intrigues the audience. So like they lean in just a tiny bit more. What's coming next, right? You're creating a little bit more of this expectation. And then boom, in another city, okay, that's something funny. So a pause slightly between the setup and the punchline. And then the really more important pause is after the punchline. Because what a lot of new comedians or people who are trying humor for the first time do is they they step on their laughter, what we call stepping on your laughter. It's where you say something that's maybe funny or interesting or going to make people smile, but you're so nervous about it that you say it, the other person is starting to process it, they're getting ready to laugh, and then you start talking again. So they suppress that laughter because they want to hear what you say next, right? And all of this happens in microseconds, but that's part of what's learning that that timing is about. But learning at least the structure of setup and then the punchline at the end and at least leaving a pause for people to understand it, to get it, to have an opportunity to laugh. That's also a really important structure thing that applies whether you're writing jokes for a stand-up comedy club or you want to be a little bit funnier in conversation. Why do you think the unexpected is so funny to human beings? It's like when at that end, the last part that's weird, you laugh and you can hear a joke about something really terrible and it's funny and it's so unexpected. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I found that funny. I I disagree with this, but it was still a funny premise. Why do you think our brains find that funny? Well, there's there's a really interesting kind of discussion around the the evolutionary benefits of humor. There's an entire book kind of dedicated. And to, uh, to, to this is where we continue to dissect that frog. This is where that, that frog is so incredibly dead. And I'm like, now let's look at the heart. Right? And yep. I'm destroying it. But there are kind of four theories as to why humans laugh. Uh, so there is a superiority theory, which says we laugh when we feel superior to others. It's kind of like the schadenfreude moment. It's kind of a little bit like, oh, they're, they're, that person's going through this difficult thing. I'm not. I'm going to laugh about it. So that's one theory. Another theory is uh, what's called incongruity theory. And that's just to say we laugh at something unexpected. And that's just because we as humans have certain patterns that we're expecting and something unexpected arises there's only a handful of reactions that we can have. We've developed, you know, laughter as one of those to be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's new. Interesting. Uh, there's also relief theory, which suggests that we laugh when we feel tension. And then there's a relief of that tension, maybe in an unexpected way. And this is one that comes kind of from a, with an evolutionary bent that kind of suggests like, if you were, you know, a cave person and you heard a rustling in the bush and you thought it was a tiger that was getting ready to kill you, but then it was really just your friend Fag or whatever, you know, is the name of a, a cave person these days. I don't know. Um, jumping out to scare you, you're going to laugh because you're like, oh, I thought I was about to die, but I'm not. So like here, here's a way for me to relieve the tension in my body. And then finally, the fourth one that kind of combines a lot of those elements is something called the benign violation theory, which is uh, the focus of a book called The Humor Code. And that it basically says we laugh when we perceive some type of violation. Maybe it's something unexpected or maybe it's something that is inappropriate, 
but we recognize that it's benign in some way, maybe because it's a joke or because of who said it, et cetera. And so to me, a great example of that is I think a Mel Burns quote that says, tragedy is I cut my finger and comedy is you fall into a sewer and die. Like it's this idea of like, okay, yeah, if something bad happens to you, I can laugh about it because it's far away. Whereas if something bad happens to me, it's it's too close. It's it's not, it's a violation that's no longer benign. So I can't laugh about it. So there's a lot that goes into why people laugh. And the one that I can't, and I'm happy I'm talking to you because I, I can't figure out why this is funny is callbacks. I, I don't understand why a callback, it's almost like uh, for people who are listening, it's, you know, something that's said earlier and then you, mm-hmm. you weave it back into the conversation and it almost doesn't even have to be funny in the beginning, but it is funny when you do it again. Why is that? Yeah, this this is the thumb of the frog at this point. We're getting narrowed down, but this that me referencing the frog again is a callback, right? That's an example of this this technique. And I think if I had to guess, my or at least my theory of it is that what you have done when you use a callback is you have created an inside joke for everyone listening in that moment. You're creating a li- we're all in this together. This was a thing that we all experienced before isn't it crazy that I brought it back now? Like, isn't this thing that we remember, right? So you're creating kind of this connective tissue and you're absolutely right. They absolutely crush. They do very well. And I think it is, it's one of the things that we encourage, especially if you're a speaker, if you're putting together a presentation and this happens in the TEDx talk, right? I open with a story about my grandmother and texting and I close with a story about my grandmother being on Facebook, right? That helps us. The other thing that it can do is it can help us feel like it's a bookended experience. Right. Like if I talk about my grandmother and then never mention her again in the entire talk, you may later think about like, whatever happened to his grandmother? Why did we talk about that? But to put it kind of at the end, it's like, okay, here's a little bit of a button. Here's the thing that I all kind of that we all remember from before. And now we're all together. Now this is no longer something that was just a random joke that you said, but it's something that we've created together as an entire holistic experience. But callbacks are a great way to incorporate a little bit of humor. They're great even for conversation. So if you have a good memory, that can be one technique you use. Don't always do callbacks. Not everything should be a reference to something else, but can be a great way to add a little bit of levity into into a moment. How do you handle people who are really funny, but not trying at all? Like what's the balance between, I don't want this to seem like I'm laughing at you because I know someone like this and the things they do are outrageous and they're so funny, but I'm not sure is it okay for me to be laughing at what you're doing? Because you're not, and I know you didn't mean to. How do you traverse those situations? I think it depends on, because sometimes sometimes it's a, a delivery technique, right? And, and this is an interesting balance. It's kind of the, the in some ways, I think of it as like uh, a Jimmy Fallon on SNL versus like a, a, a Kenan Thompson on SNL, where it's like Jimmy Fallon was was... Uh, like known for just cracking up all the time. He was constantly cracking what we say kind of in performance is that he would do something or say something ridiculous and then he would laugh at himself, do it. Whereas uh, Kenan Thompson typically is pretty good at like, even in the most ridiculous things, he typically has a pretty straight face on while he's delivering. He's more, uh, you know, stone faced while delivering. And so it can be a delivery technique because the more ridiculous thing that you do and the more kind of sincere you are about it, in many ways, the funnier it will come across if it's intentional. So if it's intentional, then it's great. Yeah, definitely laugh because it's just part of the technique, the style of it. If this person is just unintentionally funny and they don't even know that they're being funny, uh, I think 
I would probably have to have a conversation with them eventually. Cause like <laughs> it would like, I'd have to be like, do you know, are you okay when I laugh at these things? Cause to me, this is the funniest thing in the world, but I don't want you to feel like I'm making fun of you. Like this is just a city. Like it would probably be a conversation. Cause for the most part, I would probably laugh. I'm someone who is much quicker to laugh at things again, because I want to feel with people to feel supportive and laughing feels amazing. So like, why would I reduce the number of times that I get to feel like joy in my body? So I'm like, I tend to try to be quick to laugh. So I'd, I'd probably lean towards the laughing side unless I got a sense that it was, you know, uh, something that they didn't appreciate or that they uh, felt offended by, et cetera. So I might do a, a check in a little bit with them. As far as comedies go, do you have a movie that you can pop in or I suppose stream and you'll always get a laugh from it? Or maybe like a comedy special that you just keep coming back to no matter what? I mean, my favorite movie of all time is Airplane. Um, and it has, I think at least, um, uh, at least of it within the last, like last, like maybe 10 years ago, it still had like the highest number of jokes per minute of any movie. Um, oh, wow. and it's just, and, and it's my style of humor. I love the kind of silly kind of like pun style, um, wordplay, et cetera. And there's, I watch it and it's like, I've seen it probably 25, 30 times. And I feel like every single time I watch it, there's still a new joke, maybe something in the background or whatever, like. Oh, I never actually noticed that before. So that's one that I can um, uh, watch pretty much over and over again from a, a pure movie perspective. Comedy specials, I'm a huge fan of Eddie Izzard. And uh, the special Dress to Kill is one that I can kind of go back and just rewatch from the from a storytelling perspective, from a like performance perspective. Uh, just so phenomenal. So those are the, the first two, I think, that that come to mind. And then from YouTube videos, I find myself rewatching Key and Peel sketches. Like I feel like Key, Key and Peel just yep. nailed so well the heightening. They do a, if you watch a Key and Peel sketch, you'll do you can notice the like if this is true, what else is true heightening happening. Like everything is earned, like as ridiculous as it might be, same thing with South Park, as ridiculous as they might end up at the end of either an episode or a sketch it's all kind of earned in some way. If you follow this like very loose logic of if this is true, what else is true? And then it's kind of, it, I mean, pieces of those skits have infiltrated our culture, like A.A. Ron. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, I call people Aaron A.A. Ron from that show. So uh, the impact, what about SNL um, cast members? Do you have a favorite throughout the years? Um, a really big fan of Bill Hader. Um, I, the impressions, I think. And then just for whatever reason, his Stefan character, um, when he was on, when he would do that on Weekend Update. And that I think is partially, it's the fun of it, right? Like he's getting a script that he's never seen before. And the writers, particularly John Mulaney are very intentionally trying to say, what are the most ridiculous things that we can make him say? Like, and so like the fun playfulness of that back and forth, I think I, I, I find myself watching Weekend Update a lot with, with Colin Jost and Michael Che, the back, you know, the kind of the back and forth that they have. Uh, as well in terms of, of current. Um, uh, I think uh, more historically, I was a really big fan of, of Kristen Wiig, uh, maybe even more so now in movies that she's in. Like she sometimes went really extremely silly in SNL, whereas in movies she's just very like phenomenally um, talented. And, um, and, and Chris Farley was also like, you know, from a pure performance that like Chris Farley is maybe the, the opposite style of my style of humor. So it was like, just like the, uh, thoroughly impressive to watch this balance of physical comedy plus really smart comedy. Do you ever watch laugh track sitcoms ever? It's been a long time since I have. 
Um, and that's just, uh, I don't know if it's, it's not necessarily because I've like, I'm going to like get right. Like if there's a laugh track, I'm not, I don't have like a hard and fast rule, but, um, I haven't, but it is a really interesting, it is a really interesting question, isn't it? Like, cause if you watch any laugh track show and you remove the laugh track, it's weird. It's like <laughs> yeah. dystopian, like yeah. depressing yeah. level disturbing to watch yes. because of the amount of pausing. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Garfield without Garfield comic strip. No. So there's there's a an artist or someone who basically took Garfield because the idea is that um, Garfield is a cat, right? So theoretically, John Arbuckle would not be able to hear Garfield talking. And so it just is removing the speech bubbles and everything from Garfield. And it's a very like, it's still very funny in a dark way of like who this person is now who's talking to this cat that's not actually getting anything from them. Uh, and so that's to me is what it's like watching a TV show without with the laugh track removed. And I don't know, it's, 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 I, I've gotten to the point where like in my life where I'm like, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to shame anyone for anything that they like, as long as it's not hurting people. So if you love the laugh track and it helps you to laugh a little bit more, all the more power to you. It's probably just not a style of show, at least currently that I'm, I'm super interested in watching. What is a show you're, you're, you're in right now? That's a comedy that you like. I'm a big fan of Ted Lasso. I haven't, I still haven't quite finished season three, but like the, the unbridled kind of positivity, but then also the very real kind of exploration of, of mental health challenges and things like that, uh, I think is, uh, is, is very enjoyable, very engaging, like, uh, in terms of just from a, a style of show, um, trying to think what else. Um, I'm, 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 I'm big into the Marvel cinematic universe, um, just as a nerd side, cause I'm a, you know, all types of nerd. And so MCU, and I think in particular, the director with the Thor movies, particularly, um, uh, some of the earlier Thor ones, but Taika with Titi, I think Waikiki, um, is just a phenomenal director who they're known a lot for their improvisation. And I think you see that of like, these are people having fun. Like when you can kind of sense that the people are having fun in the show that they're doing, um, that I think works. I do need, I have not started secession, but a, a good a friend of mine named, uh, a guy named uh, Rajiv Satyal, very funny comedian based in, in LA. He told me that he thinks secession is one of the funniest TV shows that's been out on TV. And I was like, I really? thought it was a drama. So and he's I. like, it is, but it is funny. Um, so huh. I'm like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to have to check that out. Okay. And speaking of having fun on stage, I know you've seen whose line. Mm-hmm. I feel like every, my parents have seen Whose Line is it anyway. Yeah. Who do you most resonate from the original cast of Whose Line? Ah, that's a fantastic question. I love that. So I was, I loved watching Whose Line growing up. Oh, yeah. And it's weird to me because I never, I was like, I could, I never watched that show and was like, I could totally do that. Like that was never within my, my wheelhouse. And the fact that I later then did stand up and improv and I met, um, Drew Carey at one point when they were doing the show, et cetera. Oh, like, uh, it's incredible, like the, the skill set. but what's interesting is that all of that stuff is learnable. Like those, all of those rules that come into an improv game like that, you think like, how can they possibly do that? What's interesting is those rules actually make it easier to be funnier because the audience is in on the rules because they know, Hey, in this scene that you're only going to be able to speak in questions, it becomes funnier as an audience member because we're seeing the constraint that they're working with. If they just present it and said, hey, here's a funny scene and they happen to only do it in questions, 
they are talented enough that they would probably make you laugh, but probably not nearly as much. It's part of us knowing kind of what they're working with. It's the fact that we know that Wayne Brady is improvising those songs up off the top of his head that make them even fun. They're ta- they're, he's talented in and of himself, but it's even funnier because we just heard the suggestion that they got. So that's what's really interesting about improvisation is that the structure and the fact that it is improvised makes it, it funnier to us. But in terms of to answer your question of who I probably most identify with, it is probably... Ryan Stiles, um, the tall one, because he has very funny lines, but a lot of times he's also setting things up and it's very much his interplay with Colin Mockery that a lot of times that really make people laugh. Like I am definitely, I am in awe of, but 100% not a Wayne Brady style, like super fantastic performer and out there, et cetera, a little bit further back, a little bit more reserved, a little bit more of the setup, I would say. His feels like it would be the hardest to sing and also be funny. Um, maybe it's just because I'm not a singer, but to to add rhyme and rhythm mm-hmm. in a different manner, it's incredible. But I mean, we'll just dive down for a second. Do you have a favorite game that they would play? Um, I so many, I love pretty much all of the games. Um, a really big fan of uh, press conference. Um, of where they would answer, you know, we have to answer questions, any type of guessing game. I'm like super into, I think where they have to, to do, uh, some of those components and, and guessing games were always my favorite to play. Cause like in improvisation, there's short form. That's what whose line is anyway. It's like, here's a, you're going to do something in four or five minutes. Here are very specific rules. We're going to tell the audience what those rules are. So whose line is anyway is great at that. There's also a, a fantastic organization called comedy sports. And they're in, I think, 25 plus cities in the U.S. And so you can go for a live show, go and see them. And it's it's short form improv. Then there's also what's called long form improv. And that is where uh, it, you get one suggestion and then the, the, the performers might go for 25 minutes or 50 minutes, et cetera, like much longer. And what's interesting is that there's actually a lot of structure in that as well. And so um, I've done both. I enjoy playing both. I think guessing games in the short form side is probably my favorite thing to, to play. Uh, also one of my favorite things to watch. And I think of the clips that I go back and watch the most, it's probably, uh, I like the quick-wittedness of scenes from a hat. So just seeing what they're able to come up with so quickly. And then the newscasting shows, the newscasting yes. segments, because you get to see, because like Colin almost always opens with some type of utterly ridiculous joke or whatever. Ryan has a reaction to that. They throw to Wayne Brady, who does some ridiculous kind of like thing or what. Like there, there's a there's a lot of dynamics kind of going on in that. So I'd say those are probably those are the ones that come to mind the the most. And what's interesting though to, to touch upon the music thing, I I did a little bit of musical improv, and I was so amazed to find how much structure there is into it. Like the if you go back and watch a lot of those shows, and Wayne Brady like breaks it a little bit. But what we were taught is like, if you're going to do a song, it's like, you're going to do, do a four line verse where there's two rhymes, like rhyme the first two lines, then the second two rhymes, and then do a four line chorus where maybe it's even just the same line repeated over and over again. And when I was learning this, I was like, there's no way that that makes the audience. And it's like, see, it feels almost too formulaic, right? It feels like, oh, all I got to do is think of like two rhymes total and then say a line over and over again. Turns out it crushes because one, people know it's improvised. And two, if you look at pop songs today, if you look at some of the most popular songs out there, there is so much repetition in it. It's not like they're super complex things. It's like, no, the audience wants to sing along. They want to get to know it. And so that structure 
musical improv is what really helped to clarify for me, like how valuable structure can be in the creative process and how, if we can learn some of that hidden structure, it can actually make us funnier without discounting that process. And then speaking of the process, which can be learned and shared, how often do you get approached by people, specifically men who are trying to be funnier for things like dating apps? Because it seems like, and I met my wife on a dating app and I really did feel the pressure to stand apart. And I, I didn't understand the rule of three, but I did try to you know do something unexpected to be funny. But what's the tip for guys out there or women too, who mm-hmm. want to set themselves apart on an app and express a little bit of humor is the unexpected like the only way to go or are there other methods there no i think that it's a great question it has a lot of application to outside of of dating i'll, I'll be honest i don't get a, a ton of people that you know approach me to ask me about it but i think it is something that people think a lot about and in general what i would say is whether it's on a dating app or in a networking event or at work etc one of the things that we say, because I spend most of my time in the corporate space, right? It's working with leaders and professionals. How do I use humor? How do I create more of the culture, et cetera? One of the things that I, I just joke about is, is, you know, what I say is a very simple, very important, very dumb question is, would you rather do something that is fun or not fun? Right? right? And everyone says fun. And so it stands to reason then if you were to, you know, make your meetings a little bit more fun, would people be more likely to be engaged in them? If you're to make your emails a little bit more fun, would people be more likely to read them? If you're to make your dating messages, made dating messages a little bit more fun, would people be more likely to respond? And the answer across the board of all of those things is 100% absolutely. And I met my wife on a dating app as well. We met on Hinge. Uh, we're married now. So that makes us unhinged. Uh, right, I think. <laughs> that's good. Uh, that should be the tagline. Yeah, and that's that should be the tagline. Get unhinged. Uh, and uh, and yeah, humor is very much a, a part of my strategy. And this this might be too much of a, a diverture, but uh, like I mentioned, so I'm an engineer, and so I met my wife in a year that I had ended up going on 99 first dates. Holy jeez. Like I was in New York and I wanted to meet a life partner. I wanted to meet someone to like settle down with. The intent was not to go on 99 dates. It wasn't to see how many people I could go. It was just like, I'm going to be intentional about this. I'm going to set it up as kind of like a, pro- think of it as a project in my head. If I was a project, I, I project manage everything else that's important in my life. What if I did this? And so in that process, I started, I, I learned and I had kind of the data of like, in terms of my own experience that, yeah, when I used humor, people were more likely to respond. They were more likely to like, rather than just being like, hey, what do you do? I would say, okay, how can I come up with a fun way to ask that question? How could I think of like, you know, either phrasing a little bit of delay, like, you know, um, what did you spend eight hours doing today on your work day? Or, you know, what? hey, what's the, the coolest thing that you've done at your job recently? Not where it's like, hey, how do I make this hysterical? But just how do I make it a little bit different? How do I stand out? How do I make it a little bit more fun? So unexpected is one of those ways. But another way is is through references and connections and things like that. So, for example, one of the things that I put on my Hinge profile, which was like, uh, I think it was like relationship goals or something like that, rather than just saying whatever blank it was, it was like, I want to be like Ann Perkins and Leslie Nopes and Parks and Oh, that's and good. Right. Yeah. So I'm representing that. Like, and, and so people would oftentimes, they would then message me like, well, who gets to be Ann Perkins and who is, and it's like, I want to be, Ann, I want you to call me a beautiful land mermaid, like Leslie <laughs> Oak 
says to Ann Perkins. Like I want yep. those, I want to be showered with these ridiculous compliments or whatever. And so then we'd have this fun back and forth. So now it's no longer about, oh, in your relationship goals, you said you want to have someone that you laugh with. It's like, no, now we're arguing about who gets to be Ann Perkins. And now we're coming up with these kind of ridiculously fun, um, uh, you know, compliments that are, you know, unexpected or whatever, right? So references to particular ideas or concepts is a great way to incorporate a little bit of humor. Again, whether it's dating or it's for, for meetings as well. And that's one of the things that, you know, we, we've recently kind of developed and, and recognized is that, you know, if humor is a skill and it means it can be learned, then the question isn't, are you funny? The question is, what kind of funny are you? And we've discovered that there's seven kind of primary ways that people tend to express their humor. And so one of them is that entertainer, that that person that we think of as the life of the party, really funny, the Wayne Brady's out there, et cetera. That is one persona, but there are six others. And so one of the other ones that is an easy way to get into it is what we call the curator. And that's someone who maybe isn't funny themselves, but they know the perfect gift to like drop into the group chat or they know the perfect reference or the image to share with someone, right? So if you're nervous about, you know, dating apps, et cetera, and you're not sure what to say, it's like, oh yeah, you can reference things or you can give a quote to something or whatever. And that's a great form of humor to use. Have you ever found, I'm going to flatter you, that you've been too funny for a situation, especially in like dating? Did you ever have a moment where it was, where you bypassed any sort of like um, relationship possibilities just because you were the the humor guy? Did that ever happen to you? Um, I don't think I've ever been too, have I ever been too funny? I mean, I, I, I made someone laugh so much they threw up once. And so <laughs> I'm like, awesome. okay, maybe that is, it wasn't in a day. It was like in a, I think they were just too drunk or something like that. It wasn't in a day, but like, <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. I certainly, what, what was weird though is, so when you go on 99 first dates in a year, it's, it's far too many. And I did at a, at a period of time get too kind of focused on dates where it was like, and I, the most I had in one day was four, which Holy is too many. Geez. Four first dates is too many because it was essentially like, hey, well, let's meet for uh, early brunch and then let's meet for a coffee and then let's meet for dinner and then let's meet for drinks. And they basically turned in like what was networking conversations. And so less about becoming too funny, but it would be like, oh, they would start talking, what do you do for a living? It's like, oh, I teach people, you know, how to use humor to be more effective. Like, what does that look like? Oh, I travel around and speak. And so we'd end up talking about like the job or we'd talk, do a deeper dive into like humor, et cetera. And then by the end of it, the, it, would, it was not, there was no romantic interest in there. They're like, you know, thanks for dissecting that frog for me. Like now I'm going to move right. on to someone who is actually fun. So I had to like learn to like change that perspective. And I do think it's true that, you can use humor too often, right? There are those people who like, you're sometimes around and it's just exhausting to be around them. You're like, can you turn it off? Can you be authentic for a moment? And so using humor isn't an excuse to deflect everything. It's not an excuse not to do your work. It's not an excuse to like, you know, if someone is, if you're trying to get to know someone or whether it's on a, on a networking level or a relationship level or whatever, like if they're asking something that's a little bit deeper, if they've shared something more personal with them, it's not like, how do I make a quick joke about this and then never reveal who I am as a person? Like, no, that becomes too much. So it is something that you need to, to be aware of. And so as a humor expert, then I have to assume you use LOL sparingly <laughs> or it, 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 when it comes, it has to be with high respect. Well, I... I have, I don't know that I've ever used LOL not sarcastically. Like if something truly makes me laugh out loud, I, in my, I type out laugh out loud. 
Because I oh. want people to know that I literally actually do it. I will type out like, wow, that made me laugh out loud. Like I won't use it because LOL has become shorthand for kind of a like, huh? Like there's a yes, great comic yes. strip that I just recently saw on on uh, the the comic subreddit where it was just like, you know, it was a, playing these two people kind of texting back and forth being like, this is the funniest thing that I've ever seen. Oh my God, yes, I'm cracking up over here. Oh my God, in tears. And it's like two people texting that completely stone face. And it's like, yeah. I feel like that's how most people are when they type LOL. It's more of a like, this is meant to be a joke. Okay. Kind of look at that. The other thing about LOL is that um, I think I saw a sign and probably again from Reddit or social media somewhere, but it was a picture. It was meant to be like a, you know, watch out for people who are drowning or whatever. And it was essentially the LOL sign. And so I've never been able to look at LOL the same because it's like, oh yeah, it does look like a person with two hands up in the air <laughs> that is, you know, submerged halfway underwater. How do you use haha then? I use, yeah, there's a great, this is a like, the number of ha's in it like goes from haha is just more of like, I am recognizing that you attempted to use humor, but I have not physically laughed. Ha 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 uh, is typically like, okay, yeah, that made me smile. Ha 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 ha. Like four of them is like, okay, like, yeah, that's got an actual chuckle for me. Uh, ha ha ha's past four where it's like really extended is probably now me being a little bit sarcastic about the, ah, the thing. Like okay. there's a certain range where it gets to be like, okay, clearly I didn't laugh that much. So, be aware when someone gets a text from you, the length of the ha 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 really exactly. determines. Yeah, you got to start to like, I hope other people aren't necessarily reading into it, but that's in my head what I'm thinking about of like, I recognize what you're doing there. You get two ha's from me. And a ha, a single ha is like, I see that you attempted humor, but uh, I I do not agree that it's humorous. Like it is like, oh, it's like, okay. a, uh, you, that, that's what it is for me. I don't think that's true for everyone, but I think it's a like, Nice try. That's funny you say that because everybody has their own responses as far as like, quote unquote, laughter with texting. But I, I got to get your opinion on emojis. How often are you using them? Should they ever be used in an attempt to be humorous? What are your thoughts? I think they should. I I previously was kind of against them. For a long time, I wouldn't use them kind of hardly at all in my own communication. Um, but I, I've come around to that. First of all, because... And I, I joke that like because of emojis, my phone is now more capable of expressing emotion than I am because I'm an engineer. Like I'm not super outwardly expressive. And also I have never once stuck out my tongue, winked and blushed at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet there's like an emoji for that. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, you can kind of like convey that if you want. And so I do think... The fact that they go beyond just the emoji faces now I think can be a great form of humor. So I'm in a, I'm in a group text with a bunch of people that I did or like four, uh, three other really close friends that um, just been friends with for a long time. Also did a bunch of improv with. And it's constantly one of those things. We talk about real world stuff all the way ranging from like, you know, this thing versus like NBA game, what happened and then gifts and all that kind of stuff. And one of the most effective, like I think, forms of humor that we use with each other is the choice of emoji that we pick in response to something, right? Like sometimes it can be a smiling face to say, yes, that was a funny thing. But sometimes it's like, oh, we we scroll the depths of what the emojis could be to pick something that is kind of like, 
And I can't think of a good example, a comedic example, but it's like, oh, a friend of mine recently took, uh, he sent a picture of like a really good view that he had after a really long bike ride. And so it's like the emojis on it were like the picture of a bike, but then also like a picture of a camera and the picture of a like um, Vista or whatever, a painting, that kind of stuff. Like it's rather than it's like a thumbs up, it's like, how can we, we respond to something a little bit more interesting? So I'm a big fan of it in that case. And I think emojis are interesting. I, uh, a friend of mine that I used to work with, we would sometimes communicate only in emoji. We would awesome. like, okay, how do I, using an emoji, figure out how to convey, do you want to go to lunch sometime soon? We should go get burritos. And it's just like, okay, like clock and then two people and then lunch and then a burrito, like, or whatever. And so it's like, it can be a fun, like we're going back to hieroglyphs is what I'm talking about. Like we're going back <laughs> yeah. to the Egyptian hieroglyphs. Eventually people will look back upon this age and be like, they communicated only in pictures. It's kind of like when people um, send messages on Venmo. It's usually some sort of emoji. Do you have an all-time favorite GIF and meme? Ooh. Um, I mean, old. if we're talking old school meme, uh, always enjoyed the Velociraptor um, just because they yep. were puns and things like that. Um, so I did enjoy that. More current meme, I think the uh, the uh, the prequels, the Star Wars prequel, Anakin and Padme, where it's kind of a like um, it's the it's a four panel one where it's like Padme says something. It's like you do Anakin says something. Padme is like, and you do mean this, right? And then it's just like Anakin, like like that one always cracks me up um, for some reason. Um, gifts, I don't have necessarily a, I don't think I have a specific one that comes to mind. I always appreciate when a Simpson one comes up because it seems like there's almost like an, a, there, like there's, Simpsons has done pretty much everything. And so it seems like there's almost always an appropriate one of those. And then um, I, I really enjoyed the show Parks and Rec and Community. So anytime I see any of those pop up, it's like, you know, and that's a form of connection, right? When we're talking about this curation skill, there's a study done that found that when people laugh at the same time, when they shared laughter in the sense that they laugh at the same thing, they become closer together, right? And okay. so that's what it's like. We joke that memes build teams, right? So it's like, is this idea of like sharing that type of stuff is a way to become a little bit closer together. And so before I let you go, and I know you've done a lot of research on the benefits, but what's a sneaky benefit of humor that most people just, it doesn't come to mind, but you go, oh yeah, you know, there is this one thing that, you know, I don't think we're, we're really uh, quite wise to yet. Uh, the two that come to mind immediately, I would say is one humor does make you more attractive. So they've done like controlled studies of like, you know, this person with humor and this person without like to the same people, et cetera. And the people that were seen as more humorous are seen as more attractive. And it makes sense that like, you know, the number probably within the, the top three to five traits that uh, anyone will kind of pick of their significant other, predominantly sense of humor is one of the top five, if not one of like the top two, right? It's like, yeah, you want to be with someone who's going to make you laugh or smile, make you, make you, um, uh, that you find fun. And so, and there's belief that there's an evol evolutionary benefit or reason to that. Like once we got past the stage of like, we're, we're going to marry someone who's going to keep me safe. We moved on to the stage of like, are they going to keep me safe? And, oh, this person makes me laugh. Well, I'm going to go with that person over the person that just keeps me safe. Like as, a, as an add-on thing, uh, that's, there's a fascinating book on the evolution, kind of uh, the use of humor in evolution, and the role of uh, humor in evolution. The second one that comes to mind is that it does burn calories. Like laughing, there's a lot of physiological benefits to humor in terms of increasing blood flow through the body and relaxing muscles and things like that. And, and there's great studies where it's like one big benefit, one way to 
very well used humor kind of in your own work is like, just if you're feeling stressed is to find an excuse to laugh, watch a video, et cetera. And a lot of times you'll notice your mood changes. And then very specifically, uh, I think it was one study that, that pinned, um, 10 to 15 minutes of laughter being about the equivalent of five minutes of aerobic exercise. Oh, wow. And so I did the, I did the research of it. And this is an example of if this is true, what else is true? Cause I think it's, it might be in the TEDx talk, but say, okay. Uh, or in the first TEDx talk that I did where it's like, okay, you can think about that now just from a logical perspective. It's like, okay, if you can learn how many calories that burns, if 10 to 15 minutes of laughter is equivalent to five minutes of aerobic exercise, if that's true, what else is true? You could say, okay, what else is it equivalent to? And that's what I did was like, okay, so it's also equivalent to 10 minutes of dancing, right? Or 15 minutes, my favorite, 15 minutes of milking a cow. <laughs> yeah, from Wisconsin. So that yeah. hits home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. That's, that's incredible. Five minutes is a long time to laugh though. It is, but that's the thing of like, if it's like, okay, through it, not, not saying like force yourself to laugh, although there is something called laughter yoga, where they have looked at it and they've realized that you get the same physiological benefits in your body if the laughter is real or if it's forced on your side because it's it's a physical kind of movement. It is increasing the blood flow. And a lot of times with laughter yoga, the whole point is there's a, a laughter leader that then starts laughing and talk walks you through the exercise. And a lot of times that fake or forced laughter becomes authentic laughter. And it's, 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 you know, there's a whole entire circles and stuff dedicated. I'll be perfectly honest. It's never been a thing that I've, I've tried it a couple of times. It's never been a thing that I've been super into. I've, I'm more like, I'm just going to watch airplane again and probably get, you know, close to the same effects. But for some people, it's a great thing to say like, yeah, you can force yourself to laugh to get some of those benefits. That's awesome. And Andrew, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I, I want to plug your book. You have a few books. One of them's Humor That Works. Mm -hmm. Forgive me. There's a couple others. Can you <laughs> there's a, remind there's me? There's a few others. So um, Humor That Works is kind of the what, why, and how of using humor in the workplace. So if you want the research, if you want the case studies, if you want the stories as to why this is a valuable uh, skill to build in, in your kind of professional arsenal, Humor That Works is a, is a great book for that. Uh, the original kind of book that I came out with was 501 ways to use humor. Uh, so that's just a reference guide of 500 different ways to use humor. So it's like, here's, you know, 10 ways on how to add it to an email. Here's 13 ways to add it in a meeting here, et cetera. And so if you're just looking for like, I need ideas, that's a great book for that. Uh, the most recent book is called the skill of humor playbook. And that explores the different humor personas that I kind of mentioned a little bit earlier of like the different ways you can be funny of curator, entertainer, or inventor, or enthusiast, et cetera. And uh, gives you some exercise. It's meant to be kind of more of like a workbook style book of like some exercises to do to build each of one of those personas so that you can use them kind of as you go. But uh, all of that and more can be found on our, on our website at humorthatworks.com. We also have a bunch of free resources on the site as well if people want to kind of check those out. Amazing. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciated you filleting this frog with me and really diving down into the uh, the nuance of humor. Call back. That's Wonderful how we call back. Beautiful. Cool. See, we built a shared joke together. I love it. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, y'all.